Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful hour. I'm so glad you're joining me today, and happy Monday. Dr. Doug Gruthaus will be joining me in just a minute, and Dr. Cal Beisner in the second half of the hour, so it's really going to be great. I don't know if you've ever uh, read anything about Pascal's Wager. It's an argument in philosophy. Um, It was kind of a groundbreaking thing because it was kind of new territory in probability theory. And Doug has uh, done quite an analysis of this, and he's going to talk about uh, it, with us today, it's uh, really an argument that's presented that humans uh, have a bet uh, with their lives that God either exists or does not. And if you've ever seen it used in evangelism or outreach, it's a pretty intriguing uh, concept. Uh, but Doug is going to go way deep with us today on this, and I can't wait. So with that as a backdrop, let me take a little 60-second break and bring on Doug. Faith Radio Summer Must Read, The Bible. We're partnering with our friends at Unlocking the Bible to invite you to join us for Summer in the Scriptures. Visit MyFaithRadio.com to sign up. It's a guided tour through the entire Bible. This special journey from Genesis to Revelation will help you see how the Bible story fits together while you catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. Know the whole story of the Bible and sign up today at MyFaithRadio.com. You've heard a lot of talk lately about washing hands and doing so for 20 seconds. It's long enough to sing a chorus of a song or recite a verse of scripture. Here's one of my favorite verses from Isaiah 41.10. God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. A reminder from Faith Radio that we're in God's hands. Welcome to the show. So glad to have Dr. Doug Gruthaus on. He's an author of many books, Walking Through Twi- uh, Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, Christian Apologetics, A Comprehensive Case for Christian Faith, Unmasking the New Age. I could go on and on, but he is uh, a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, and he's got a lot of credits. He's one of my most fascinating guests. I can sit and listen to him for a, a long, long time. To the point where I begged him to do my show 100 times, and he said yes, so I held him to it. I've got lawyers out and everything. So he's got uh, seven down and 92 more to go after today. So, Doug, welcome back. Thank you. Happy you, to be here. You've got to be careful what you say to me, because I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hold you to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. So, yeah. <laughs> Relentless. Yeah. So I get this uh, notice uh, about this uh, uh, paper you had written, but I didn't wasn't able to access it because I'm too cheap or something, something like that. <laughs> but I'm fascinated with uh, Pascal's Wager, and I've heard it explained in evangelical circle, circles and apologetic, uh, and I'm just dying to hear uh, your take on it. Yes, I've written on Blaise Pascal quite a bit over the years. I have a little book. It's actually out of print. You might be able to find it called On Pascal, and there's a chapter on Pascal's Wager in there, and there's probably an article online that was 
published in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society some years ago. But Pascal's wager gets a lot of bad press. But let me tell you a little bit about Blaise Pascal. He was a 17th century philosopher, theologian, and scientist. He was actually most well-known as a scientist during his day. He worked in mathematics and also technology. He created the first working calculator, really the precursor to the computer. And he engineered an experiment that showed that uh, there was such a thing as a vacuum in nature. People had said that wasn't true. And he said, well, we need to test it. You can't just sit in your armchair and say nature doesn't have a vacuum. So he was a, a brilliant man. He died at age 39. He was chronically ill throughout his life, uh, never married, but he was uh, just, I think he was the most brilliant man of his time, actually. So he wrote uh, uh, on theology, on apologetics, science, many things, but he's often known for what's called Pascal's Wager. And there's a caricature version, and then there's the real version. And the caricature version is... Pascal said, you have no idea whether God exists or not, so believe in God just in case he's there so you'll go to heaven and not go to hell. Okay, well, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, The first way of looking at it is that Pascal thought there were good reasons for believing in the Christian God. In fact, his most well-known book, I think, is called uh, Thoughts or Pensées in French. And you can get a Penguin edition of that that's complete. You could also get one that was edited by James Houston called The Mind on Fire, which has an excellent introduction by Os Guinness. I'd recommend that one. So he has arguments for Christianity. I think his most profound argument is that the Christian view of humanity best explains our greatness and our misery. We're great in intellect and achievement in many ways because We're made in God's image and likeness, as Genesis 1 teaches. But we're also miserable. We can be cruel and petty and uh, very weak in a lot of ways. And Pascal says that's because of the fall, because of the entry of sin into the world. And I think that's a profound argument. I've written on that at length elsewhere. And then he also talks about fulfilled prophecy, uh, the uniqueness of Christ, the evidence for the resurrection. So he's not what is called a fideist. A fideist is someone who says, there's no rational support for Christian faith. You just have to take a leap. And uh, the way Pascal's wager is misinterpreted is to say he was a fideist. He thought there was no good evidence for God, but you just hope that God is there and you protect yourself by believing in him so you won't go to hell. And if there is a God in heaven, you'll go to heaven. All right. So the first point, he did think there was evidence for God's existence. However, what, and for the Christian God specifically, uh, he did say, though, that you need to get off the fence about this. So there's one of the larger fragments of the Ponces as a collection of uh, fragments or short essays he wrote that he never was able to put together into a book because he died before he was finished. But there's one fragment Uh, which is typically called Pascal's Wager. And it can get a little complicated, but what he's trying to do 
is to challenge people to investigate Christianity, uh, even if the evidence doesn't seem, seem to be totally in favor of Christianity. He wants people to look into it because the stakes are so high. So he says, consider uh, an infinitely happy life, and he means the afterlife for the redeemed. I think he says an infinity of an infinitely happy life, something like that. Perfectly good life that goes on and on. And then on the other side, the loss of that. In fact, in Pascal's wager, he never talks about hell. He just talks about gaining heaven or not. And he says you really need to consider the odds here, and you need to consider the possible reward. And this is what's called prudential reasoning. We do this all the time. We have to make important decisions, even when we don't have complete evidence. And good night. We we know that now with the pandemic. You know, you err on the side of being conservative if being wrong could mean your life or getting infected and giving somebody else the disease and them dying. So he's saying, if the Christian God exists and you believe in him, then you have so much to gain. And if you uh, believe in him and he's not there, you would lose something, but uh, you would still have a decently good life and there would be benefits to being really religious, even if God were not there. But if you fail to believe in him and he is there, then you lose this uh, wonderful life forever after death. So he lays this out uh, really carefully, and there are some academic issues to work through. And then he says, it, part of it is a dialogue between himself and an unbeliever that he created. And the unbeliever says, it makes sense for me to believe, but I really can't. I'm just stuck. I can't believe. And Pascal basically says to engage in religious activities so that he will come to believe. It makes sense that he should. So he needs to pursue belief. And that last stage is often caricatured as just being religious brainwashing. It's like, well, there's no reason to believe it. So just deceive yourself to the point where you believe it just in case it's true, and then you'll get heaven. But actually, that last part of the wager is just common sense, because there are some things we don't believe, not because it's irrational to believe them, but because somehow we're inhibited. Uh, somehow we haven't investigated the claim thoroughly, or something is keeping us from believing. And really, if we're talking about believing in the Christian God and the gospel, it's pride that gets in the way more than anything. So Pascal is saying, in Christianity is really worth investigating because of the prudential possibilities. And if you don't see there's enough evidence to believe, and he thought there was evidence, he gave arguments, but if you don't see that, then put yourself in a position where you might end up believing, that is, be involved in religious activities, and you might find yourself just naturally believing in the end. So that's a basic outline of the wager as I see it. It's an exercise in what's called prudential reasoning. It's not an argument for God's existence. It's an argument to pursue the Christian God 
because of the possible outcomes. And then it gives us the insight that coming to believe true statements is not just a matter of sitting down and thinking about it. Sometimes we need to act. You know, we need to try things out. Uh, You can't just sit and say, well, I don't like tennis. And someone says, do you ever play tennis? No, I've never even picked up a tennis ball. And you say, well, how do you know you don't like tennis? Why don't you go try it? It's something like that that he's getting at. But um, sadly, I've seen now in studying this for many, many years that uh, the ingenious insights that he gives are often caricatured. And they're made to look uh, really silly, which they're not. You know, Doug, I appreciate you kind of showing the difference between the, the what you would call the caricature version of it um, and then the, the deeper version of it, because that is so helpful. Because I, I have mm-hmm. heard people say that they talk about the caricature version and they just don't see it mm-hmm. as uh, as a very good illustration. But this is really helpful. Let me yeah. take a, a short break. Dr. Doug Gruthaus is my guest. We will be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Doug Grudhouse is my guest, and we're talking about Pascal's wager. And Pascal had a way of saying things in such a profound way that um, I do remember something from Ponce's that I have uh, that I remembered I from memory, and it was basically this: that we're all making a high-stakes life commitment to a particular faith view, and we're betting our eternal destiny on it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and. Some people will say, well, I just won't make up my mind. I'll just remain neutral on it. And Pascal famously says, no, you're embarked. You're already on a course. Right. <laughs> and uh, to know God through Christ, you have to believe in him. This is not something that just automatically happens. And also a really profound insight from Pascal is that your time is limited. So a lot of the statements in Ponce's have to do with remembering that you're going to die. And you will face God. And so you don't have endless opportunities to respond. It's an urgent matter. And I think of the many warning passages in the book of Hebrews, which say, today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him. And really, Pascal is giving that kind of a message through probability, reasoning, and through philosophy. And I think it's quite profound the way he does that. Doug, what would uh, Pascal say if somebody said, I just have this inability to believe? Well, I think what he'd say is, have you looked at the arguments for Christianity? And have you looked at my argument that uh, Christianity, among all the religions and among all the philosophies of the world, accounts for our greatness and our misery better uh, than any of the other ones. It, it has the superior view, and also it gives us hope uh, that Christ has come to redeem us, and he's shown us what uh, true and virtuous humanity is uh, through his, his life, death, and resurrection. And in fact, he was not only man, but he was God, and he provides hope uh, for those that are uh, mired in sin. And then I think, and then if someone says, well, uh, I don't know, I've I read a little apologetics and I'm just not completely convinced, I think you'd say, well, 
do you pray? <clears throat> the person might say, how can I pray? I'm not a Christian. And uh, he might say, well, seek God. Uh, pray. Say, God, if you're there, I want to follow you, and please make yourself known to me, and, and I will follow you. I, I think that uh, I'm not saying that Pascal created the skeptic's prayer, but I think the skeptic's prayer is pretty profound. And I said that recently to a young woman who's really questioning the faith she learned growing up. And uh, she said, I don't pray anymore. Um, I'm glad you pray for me, but I can't. And I said, sure you can. And then I just told her the prayer that I told you. There's nothing wrong with uh, praying with less than 100%. Certainty and also puts your heart in a position where you're humble, you're willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads. Mm-hmm. And Doug, wouldn't like Jeremiah 17 teach us that we all have faith? Is just where you've placed it? Well, certainly uh, we have commitments in life, we have intellectual beliefs, we have habits of the heart, so to speak. So the question is, what is your basic? worldview? Do you think that the universe was created with us in mind? Do you think everything is just here for no reason? Do you think somehow that everything is divine? You know, there are endless possibilities for worldviews. It's basically uh, atheism, naturalism, uh, or atheism slash naturalism, or pantheism, or some form of theism. So, uh, Yes, we have faith in various things. The question is, is that faith warranted? Is that faith meaningful, and does it correlate to reality? And if someone says, well, I won't believe in Christianity unless I have a supernatural vision of Jesus or something like that, people will say that sometimes. And they'll say, well, do you have faith in your dentist? Um, it's possible your dentist is a fraud. <laughs> do you, you know, do you have to have... Uh, perfect evidence that he really did get a degree uh, and he's not faking it. What I'm saying is that sometimes skeptics raise the bar so high it's just unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pascal wrote about that also. Um, That's kind of a way of deceiving yourself because then people can just keep moving the goalposts back. Right. They could say, well, I got some evidence here, but it's not enough. I want more. I want more. (laughs) Right. And Doug, didn't Pascal talk about the, just the uncertainty in human life? Oh, he did, yeah, in terms of uh, how close we may be to death at any right. time. Right. I mean, come on, um, 39 he died. He knows what he's yeah. talking about. Right. Yeah, there's a little parable he told. He said, imagine a group of people in a room, and one by one, each person is dragged out and executed, and you look around and you see your fate in the people next to you. And then he says, this is an image of the human condition. He did, he springs it on you. Like you get into this little sad, tragic story, and then he says, that's your story. Wow. <laughs> how, much, how much more now when we see so many thousands upon thousands of people around the world dying of this pandemic? And the question is, who's next, and are you ready to face your maker? And mm-hmm. if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, and you've humbled yourself before him, and realize that he's the Lamb of God who took away your sins and gives you eternal life, then you're ready for eternity. Yeah. If not, you're not. Mm-hmm. So if I go back to the caricature version of uh, the 
Pascal's wager. Is the primary argument against it that it uh, the caricature version makes it look like it's a game and there's n- nothing game-oriented about the certainty of Christ going to the cross, dying, and raising, uh, rising from the dead? Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, another part of it is that the person is just being crassly self-interested. Uh, yeah, believe, so just in case, if God is there, you'll go to heaven. And that's not really a good religious faith. But, um, you know, Jesus said to beware, because uh, what can you give in exchange for your life? So Jesus himself warned people in terms of their own self-interest, rational self-interest. I mean, if there is a heaven and a hell, then it makes sense to want heaven more than hell. So are you willing to consider that? Now, that's not all there is to religious faith. Obviously, there's the love of God and love of neighbor and holding on and appropriating God's promises. But, you know, Jesus said, uh, what is it worth if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's prudential reasoning right there. Mm -hmm. The mouth of Jesus. And I think he's a pretty good authority on Christianity. So the opponents of of Pascal's wager, um, maybe the, even the atheists would say that that this uh, the benefits of a deity that's outside of reason is not worth it. Well, that's the caricature. Yeah, yeah the because, caricature. Okay. Yeah, Pascal believed there were good reasons to be a Christian, but he also realized that uh, there's, there are matters of uh, the heart and the heart. He said that the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing of. And he doesn't mean that we should be emotional or irrational. He just means that some things can only be known if your basic orientation to life is correct. Mm -hmm. And if you are willing to humble yourself before God, then you can know uh, that Christ is the way. But if you set yourself up against God and all the evidence and so on, then you've just hardened your heart. So we just have a minute and a half left, Doug. Um, so I think part of the wager, if I have this right, th- is that if there is a God, that he would be incomprehensible. Do I understand that correctly? Because mm-hmm. I sometimes think, you know, a God outside this world created this world. So how could I, in this world, comprehend that yeah. God? In a minute, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that's the cliffhanger, my friend. That means you're back for number 92. Yeah, that, it does. The answer to that question is yes and no. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, so maybe you'll yeah, come God, back on again. I, I'd love to. I mean, God has revealed himself in ways that we can know through the Bible, but given that God is infinite and we're finite, there are a lot of things we cannot comprehend. That's yeah. the really short answer. Okay, thank you very much. Blessing okay. to you and your family. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Okay. Yep. Thank you. You bet. Dr. Doug Gruthaus has been my guest, and you can go to his website, uh, DougGruthaus.com. We'll take a short break, and we will be back with uh, Dr. Cal Beisner. So I love it when my back-to-back guests are friends. I just had uh, Dr. Doug Gruthaus on, and he's friends with Dr. Cal Beisner. 
I didn't even plan it th- that way, but uh, awfully fun when that happens. Uh, Cal, of course, is a regular guest on the show. He's the founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. That's a network of uh, 60 uh, Christian theologians and scientists and economists. A lot of brainiacs in that group. Uh, I've not been invited to join, so uh, I'm not taking it personally. But, Cal, welcome to the show. Oh, Doug, thanks very much. Oh, you mean Bill. No, Doug was my guest, uh, our previous yes, guest. Bill. <laughs> you I got you thinking about Yeah, I had Doug on, you know, who's great. Yeah. As you know, Doug's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the way he thinks. And um, I had a chance to hear him speak a couple of times, and I was kind of mesmerized. Um, he goes, he's, he's some deep waters. He is indeed. All right, let's stop yeah. talking about Doug and talk about your new book, Creation Stewardship, Evaluating Competing Views. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Um, and is it out already? It is indeed. Fantastic. Okay. And let's talk about it. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, this, this is a book that really offers Christians an opportunity to see uh, contrasted the views of two particular scholars. I'm one of them <laughs> because I wrote the book. Right. I assume and, you'd be uh, one. <laughs> yeah, uh, Cal DeWitt, you know, Dr. Calvin DeWitt, uh-huh. he, is, uh, he, he and I share share first names, um, uh, which is uh, kind of interesting. I think he was probably named after John Calvin. I was named after Calvin Coolidge before my parents became Christians. And later on, when I became a, a Reformed theologian, we figured that that was predestined. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, uh, he and I share an awful lot in common in terms of our appreciation of the Reformed theological uh, stream of thought and also our care for the earth and our, our desire to apply Scripture to biblical uh, earth stewardship, uh, creation care. And so in the first part of the book, I, I review a number of different ways in which uh, Cal and I uh, think very similarly. And in the second part of the book, I review some ways in which uh, we disagree. And this is an opportunity for Christians to see uh, these competing views uh, presented next to each other and uh, give, uh, you know, ha- have an opportunity to think through for themselves the reasoning pro and con on these views. Uh, my, my great desire is for Christians to think as biblically uh, as possible, and to have their their thinking as well informed as possible by science, by economics, by uh, political theory, things like that. And I'm sure that uh, Cal DeWitt's aim is is similar. And so here's an opportunity for people to do what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in First Thessalonians 5:21: test all things, hold fast what is good. Mm-hmm. So maybe you would uh, tell us what uh, you and the other Cal uh, came to agreement upon just in the earlier chapters of the book. Well, yeah, um, I'd say that, uh, you know, one of the first is simply the, the beauty of God's creation, the, the ways in which God's creation can move us to praise when we really look at it and when we, when we spend time thinking about it and sort of, instead of sort of just, you know, driving past it, you know, we don't want to buy, we don't want drive by media. Well, neither do we want drive by, uh, what residents of this 
gorgeous planet that God has put in our hands. Uh, another of the things that I think is really important to both his and my approach is the recognition that we are called by Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15 to fill the earth, to subdue it, to, uh, to cultivate and guard the garden in which we started. Uh, we have some different thinking as to the, the meaning of that garden and just what is involved in cultivating and guarding and in uh, subduing and ruling it. Um, but there are plenty of, of things here where, where Cal and I come together in, I think, real mutual appreciation of what God has put in front of us and, and, and has entrusted to us. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular uh, when you start to think about it. And I'm, I was not surprised at all that you guys have connected and have come to agreement on the uh, amazing world that God has given us. Well, for instance, uh, Cal writes in his book, Song of a Scientist, that real earth stewardship requires us, quote, to achieve and sustain the dynamic integrity of the land and its creatures, great and small, human and non-human. I, I think that's absolutely crucial. And Cal DeWitt says that to do that, we have to have freedom. We have to be people who live under... Uh, uh, under under governments that uh, that respect the people, that are responsive to the people's desires. He says, people who live under oppressive regimes that refuse to allow them to make their own decisions about development can hardly achieve this this uh, dynamic integrity of the land and its creatures. And he adds that the rule of law is necessary to protect our freedom to be stewards of God's kingdom. Well, those are points that I've been making for years as well. And, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people just aren't, aren't uh, really aware of the extent to which freedom and the rule of law are crucial to environmental stewardship. I would love for you to say a little bit more about that, because I'm really fascinated by that. And I, I love the comment that Cal made, and, and I would also... If you can, just ex expand that just a little bit more for me. Well, I suppose about as concrete a way as we could put it would be to say, suppose that you live in China and you are affected by the toxic chemical runoffs from a mining operation for the rare earth metals that are essential parts of wind turbines and solar arrays. And the company that's doing that mining is, like so many companies in China, basically a state-owned, state-run company. And you want to go to court and uh, sue for the damage being done to your health and get an injunction against that company. How successful do you think you're going to be in <laughs> communist China? Not very. On the other hand, if you live in the United States or the United Kingdom or, for that matter, any of the Western European nations, um, and you've got a similar situation where a mining operation is, is polluting the water on which you depend, uh, and you go to court 
and you prove in court that this pollution is happening and that it is in fact harmful, do you think the uh, government is likely to be fairly responsive? Not infallibly so, but a whole lot more likely than in communist China or, for that matter, any other uh, totalitarian or authoritarian regime. So the rule of law, that is the equal application of the law to everyone everywhere in the country, instead of playing favorites, and the importance of a responsive government, a government truly by the consent of the governed, these are really crucially important to environmental stewardship. And I think Cal DeWitt and I recognize that equally. And that's part of why he, he and I both would say that economic freedom, political freedom is, is really important to our being good stewards of the earth. So, Cal, is Cal DeWitt a believer? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. terrific, terrific. Um, yeah. Now it raises the next question I have for you is, can you give me a sample of where you two disagreed? Well, actually, I can go right back to the two verses that I've already named. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, 28 and, and uh, 2, 15. Uh, Cal tends, uh, Cal DeWitt, <laughs> it's always kind of strange talking about, <laughs> about him and using my own name. <laughs> so it, it right. makes it fun. But uh, Dr. DeWitt tends to, tends to argue that Genesis 2, 15 is the really fundamental text, the, the one that is the more basic between those two. Genesis 2.15 says that, that uh, God made the man and, and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and guard it. Uh, now, that's uh, a fairly typical translation. Uh, Dr. DeWitt prefers the translation to, uh, to work and serve it, to serve the garden. Um, I would argue that Genesis 1.28 is the more foundational text. And here's why. Um, not just simply that it comes earlier in the text of Scripture, but that it, it tells us what we're supposed to do, not just about the Garden of Eden, but about the whole earth. And clearly, in those early chapters of Genesis, the garden and the whole earth are not the same thing. The garden is a part of the earth, mm -hmm. a very small part. The whole earth is, is looked at as something that needs to be subdued and ruled. The garden is a place that is already subdued when God places Adam into it. The command in 2.15 is just to Adam. This comes before Eve is made. Uh, the command in 1.28 is to both Adam and Eve. And so 128 is the more basic, and the picture that we get out of that is that we are supposed to be subduing and ruling the earth, transforming it from, as I put it in my earlier book, uh, the, Where Garden Meets Wilderness, transforming it from wilderness into garden, and then keeping it that way by guarding it against the encroaching wilderness. So he and I have a different approach to that, and when he prefers in 2.15 the translation, keep and serve, uh, I would argue that the, the Hebrew verb, the second verb there, that he wants to translate serve, 
is not properly translated that way unless what's being served is a, a, a person, God or another human being. And in fact, that's what we find from the Hebrew lexicons. Uh, instead, what it means is to, uh, to guard something, to, uh, to cultivate and guard the garden. And what happens when you translate it as serve instead is that the earth, and Cal DeWitt equates the garden with the earth, the earth becomes what we serve rather than seeing that we're supposed to cause the earth to serve our needs, the needs of human beings, at the same time that we're supposed to be keeping it, uh, cultivating it and tilling it. So in the Cornwall Alliance, we, we tend to think of, uh, of a godly earth stewardship as something in which men and women work lovingly together to enhance the fruitfulness and the beauty and the safety of the earth to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. So we kind of take a different approach there. And though that might seem like a fairly fine distinction, it actually winds up having very, very important implications in terms of setting us off in, in somewhat different directions, not absolutely opposite directions, but different directions in how we go about taking care of the earth. And Cal, I'm guessing that both you and Cal DeWitt did a very uh, awesome job of putting out a very compelling argument for your position. Uh, and I'm wondering where the reader is going to end up after they finish. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, one, one could say, obviously, I hope the reader is going to come up agreeing with me. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, yeah. Obviously, I, I, I try to present the evidence in a clear and, and compelling way. Um, Another way in which uh, Caldy Witt and I disagree is that, that he is very convinced that the scientific case is, is solid, that human activity in the form of burning fossil fuels is uh, causing what will become a catastrophically disastrous increase in global temperature. I'm convinced scientifically that that is not the case. Okay, let's... Interestingly, let's Cal... Cal, can we cover ahead. that after the break? Sure, yes. Uh, just hold that thought, because it's a brilliant one. And when we return, Dr. Cal Beisner will pick up exactly where he left off. to have Dr. Cal Beisner as my guest, and we're talking about his new book called Creation Stewardship, Evaluating Competing Views. And if you want to get your hands on a copy of this book, uh, I think all you have to do is go to uh, the cornwallalliance.org, um, and then you can uh, request a free copy of Creation Stewardship, Evaluating Competing 
views. And all you have to do is, I think, just make a donation of any size. And whatever size gets you the book. So all you have to do is uh, uh, go to the cornwallalliance.org and then check out the book. And you can also, uh, if you're not a computer person and you wanted to mail a check in, you could do that too. And you could mail a donation in of any size. And the address is 3712 Ringgold Road. Number 355, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37412. And all that information, I'm sure, is at the website of the cornwallalliance.org. Cal, welcome back. Thanks. Now, we, we were talking about you and Cal DeWitt having a little bit different views on fossil fuels and um, how that's affecting our world. Yeah, um, Dr. DeWitt, because he thinks that fossil fuels, uh, our burning of fossil fuels, is causing dangerous to catastrophic global warming, he really thinks that we should just basically keep them in the ground, so to speak. And he even tries to argue that uh, what God did was uh, he, he put all these fossil fuels deep down in the ground in order to keep a balance of global temperature to keep a sort of an equilibrium in it. And we're messing things up by pulling them up out of the ground. Now, I argue, uh, first of all, that the scientific evidence uh, is very, very strong against the notion that our burning of fossil fuels is causing dangerous global warming. I think it is contributing to some warming of the atmosphere, but not uh, certainly not dangerous. Uh, but then second, I suggest that perhaps instead uh, what God did was uh, through mainly the flood, he put uh, fossil fuels down into the ground and kept them there, there so that when we uh, reached the point where we were able technologically to, uh, to make use of them, they would become a tremendous resource for us uh, from which we would be able to produce the abundant, affordable, reliable energy that is absolutely indispensable to lifting and keeping whole societies out of poverty. And uh, in fact, I even suggest that there is a kind of an analogy here with the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, you know, the, the plants and animals that, uh, that died and were buried in the great flood of Noah's day, uh, and later, under pressure and, and uh, uh, high temperatures, were transformed into coal and oil and the like. Um, these had done nothing wrong, and yet they suffered for our for our sin. Well, Jesus did nothing wrong. He suffered for our sins. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And because of his resurrection, he gives us life. Uh, I think that that's an analogy. It doesn't prove anything but it helps us to think, I think, a little more uh, creatively and uh, productively about this issue. All right, Cal, uh, quick thing. Whenever we do technology, we sometimes get uh, better reception than others. I don't know if you went to a speakerphone or not, but if you could make sure that microphone is right in front of your mouth, that would be wonderful. But let's go back, and I have a question about Dr. DeWitt. I know he's not here to defend himself, but if we don't get these fossil fuels out of the ground and create affordable energy to keep our world functioning and the poor being fed and give them energy to heat their homes. What does he say is the, is the, the, the better answer? 
Well, he doesn't really discuss that very much in this particular book with which I'm interacting, Solo Scientist. Um, he seems to lean uh, from his other writings toward uh, wind and solar. And the problem with wind and solar is that uh, because wind and sunlight are such low density uh, energy forms, uh, energy sources, um, it therefore costs a whole lot more to ramp them up into the kind of density that we need to really uh, serve our needs to generate the vast amounts of electricity, for instance, that we have to use uh, to, to power modern society that provides the food, clothing, shelter, and all the other things, uh, all, the, uh, all the equipment, the refrigeration, the air conditioning, and so on, that we depend on for health and safety. Um, so I, I think that really he's looking at uh, at options that will not serve nearly so well as fossil fuels for those for those purposes. So when we think of uh, people in poverty without access to affordable energy, um, we do it usually from a comfortable Western civilization, don't we? We sure do, and. We- and uh, <laughs> You know, I, I think, for instance, of uh, Vijay Jayaraj. Vijay is an Indian climate scientist who writes frequently for the Cornwall Alliance. He lives in Delhi, India, a city of about 25 million people. And uh, Delhi's electrical service is very unreliable. It's actually much more reliable than that of many uh, other very uh, undeveloped parts of the world. But by comparison with... <laughs> with the United States or Western Europe, Great Britain, places like that, it's extremely unreliable. And so he faces blackouts on an almost daily basis, sometimes running anywhere from four to eight or 12 hours in a day. And of course, that means that refrigeration isn't as reliable. You're more likely to have food soil. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means that you have a tougher time using uh, electric clothes washers or dishwashers or clothes dryers, things like that. All of that puts huge extra burdens on, on individuals. I mean, imagine having to wash by hand all of your clothing uh, because you so frequently can't have electricity. Uh, and when you can have it, it's not very affordable for you. Not only is your income low living where you do, but the prices are high because the system is not well developed. So uh, you know, to say that, that we should be insisting that people in places like that should skip fossil fuels and go directly to wind and solar is really kind of like saying, well, let them eat cake. Uh, no, that, that really will not do. And yeah. it will trap billions of people in long-term poverty. And then... Uh... When I think of refrigeration, if, if they're having food go bad, and then the comfort level, what do they have? Uh, did most people in India have air conditioning? Because if they didn't, they'd be oh. in big trouble. Very, very few people in India have air conditioning, certainly not in any rural places. Uh, and even those who do have air conditioning don't have it reliably, don't have it all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, Vijay has written to me at times when, the external temperature is uh, 110 degrees or so, and they've been without air conditioning in their apartment for eight or 10 hours straight. And uh, that's not exactly comfortable. (laughs) It makes work 
rather difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, and of course, there are diseases that spread too yeah. from spoiled food when the refrigeration fails. But then the, the misery of the 100 and, you know, 10 degrees during the day, but then how in the world do you sleep at night? Well, absolutely. And in fact, often uh, when Vijay will write to me, it'll be uh, around midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 a.m., uh, when he's up working then because even though it's still about 100 degrees inside his apartment, uh, it's at least cooler than it is in the middle of the day. So he will wow. try to sleep in the day and work in the night. Uh, this is just not uh, not a great situation for many people in India. Yeah. Well, Cal, thank you so much for doing the show. I uh, just want to let our, all our listeners know you can go to the cornwallalliance.org and pick up a copy of Creation Stewardship, Evaluating Competing Ideas. And all you have to do is just uh, make a donation of any any size, and you can get a copy of the book. Does that sound right? That's it, cornwallalliance.org. Thanks very much. Cornwallalliance.org. We'll take uh, uh, Cal, thanks so much for doing the show. So gl- glad to talk to you again. Thank you, too. All right. That wraps up our show for today. Uh, thanks to all my guests. It's really been a wonderful uh, couple hours. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you have a great night. And thanks for supporting Faith Radio. You're the very best. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.